Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. This episode is a recording of a public event held on November 29, 2023 at the 3M Innovation Center. Our first ever Global Business Outlook explored the global business megatrends that can pose risks or lead to growth opportunities for Minnesota companies. Leading the discussion on global megatrends was Dr. John Preneur, CEO of Government Analytica. John's keynote focused on his annual 2024 Top 12 Global Megatrends. The keynote was followed by an elite panel of Global Minnesota corporate members. Representatives from leading multinationals shared their insights and recommendations on how companies can pivot from risk to opportunity. Here is the 2023 Global Business Outlook. I want to acknowledge some special guests that are among us this evening. I know we have in the room Bruce Karstead, the Minnesota, Minnesota Consulate Force. And Bruce, thank you for joining us tonight. I know he's coming. I've seen him. Jonathan Winehead is going to be joining us, president of the Minneapolis Chamber. Uh, Matthew Woodley, the director of the U.S. Commercial Service. Beth Richardson, the Consul General of Canada. Lawrence Resentar, the director of International Business Strategy at the State of Minnesota. And of course, Tom Hansen, uh, earlier. And Tom should give you the full title of Diplomatic Residence at the Albrecht Institute for International Affairs at the University of Minnesota Duluth in Impossible Business Park. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to take a note and just say we have some wonderful people in the room that have been very helpful to me. I'm one year into my role here at Global Minnesota, and we have some great folks that have been helpful to me, the folks that you might want to meet, particularly if you're interested in the countries that they represent. We have our honorary, many of our honorary consulate our members with us this evening. Um, and, and I'm going to kind of just walk through, maybe they can give a wave to who might want to come talk to you about your, about your country that you represent. Um, so Elaine Kubalan is here from representing Finland, so Elaine, great to have you with us. Um, Mara Kusera, who's Mara again? Mara represents the Czech Republic. It's great to have Mara with us. Ron Leonhardt is here, representing Japan, which is wonderful. So he's our uh, honorary consul for Japan. Um, John Freibolds is here from Latvia. Who's John? John Freibolds. Um, Fawad uh, Mahawaji. Mahawaj. How do I do? Mahawaj. Again, very representing Lebanon. So great to have you with us tonight. Fawad. Um, Jan Bauer from the United Kingdom and also a local Minnesota board member. Um, Rit um, Ardekani, Rick Ardekani is with us from Norway, uh, representing Norway, and Christina Carlton from the Executive Director of Norway. And also, we have some wonderful folks that have joined us for the program tonight. If you want to see one of them out and learn more about what they do in their roles at Honorary Councils, uh, please do so. So, thanks to a great team of moderators, presenters, and panelists who have come together. Um, you're going to meet those folks in just a moment. We have a great, great team of assembled for you tonight. I want to say thanks to our Global Minnesota Corporate Membership Committee, especially John Knorr and uh, Tana Moore and Donovan Walsh, our co-chairs for our, our corporate committee. Our staff, Katie Kelly and Steve Riedel in particular, for the work they've done to help put together the program tonight. And our Global Minnesota board members, and a few of our Global Minnesota board members in the room, raise your hand, board members for Global Minnesota. We have you guys here tonight, too, and be very helpful in putting our program together. Um, we get a chance to connect with all these folks. We're going to have a very interesting um, opportunity for networking at the end of the program today. John will explain a little bit more about that later, but there'll be a chance for you to meet many of these same folks during that time. And also during the networking time, please visit the tables outside this room with offerings from your fellow corporate members as well as our corporate organizations. So today we are gathered here to discuss megatrends, global shifts that change our society and the way we do business. They are powerful disruptive forces that shape our personal and business lives and the socioeconomic norms of tomorrow. We're looking forward to a truly great conversation. I want to thank you again for joining us tonight. And I want to now invite forward Marlene Lopez Barra. She's the Strategy Director of County Governance and Emerging Markets for 3M. 
old woman is still born, however, she's going to welcome us to 3M today. Martin, please come forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and officially welcome to 3M. It is always an honor to feel the energy when we have a room filled of people. When I come in, no matter what the day it is, and no matter the time it is, and you hear the bienvenidos, welcome. Hopefully you heard it as you were coming into the building. And I can say that as a 22-year camera, every time I go through the Tree Innovation Center tour, I still get goosebumps. And the reason for that is when I see Google Minnesota connect and form engage, the first word that I see is connect. And when I see this story of 3M, for those of you that went through the tour, it's about the way that Trium has been able to connect those 51 technologies. And I always say, if 51 technologies can create 50,000 products, imagine the power of probably close to 100 different minds from different parts of the world with different experiences. And just being able to be all in the same room, being able to connect, being able to connect Minnesota to all these different opportunities, engaging to all these different opportunities. So for us, it's an honor to put these people in this room, to have the opportunity to have John back at 3M. This is your house and for all of be your house. So a double honor to have John having this the first year here and hopefully many years hosting this event. And with that, we'll continue with the event and we would like to invite Tana Moore to continue the event, she is a Global Minnesota board member and chair of our corporate membership committee. She was CEO of Meritas, a global alliance of legal lockers prior to retirement. And with that, thank you very much, Pat. Welcome to the Thank you. And, and what a wonderful place to be and see all the innovation of 3M. It's just amazing to be there. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce John Panor, our keynote speaker, and our conversation starter, uh, Lori McDougal. I just want to give him a few words. You have plenty of background in your um, in your uh, materials there. But John, for 34 years, has 34 years at 3M. Whoa. Um, he brings a rich background in analyzing trends, applying those trends to business and government strategies, and building bridges between business and foreign governments. Today, he leads a consulting practice called Government Analytica, where he works with businesses and their advisors to communicate their public value to foreign governments and their representatives with the goal of increasing the strengths of those relationships. Most recently, he was a speaker at the World Affairs Council of America meeting. It was held in Washington, D.C. It's the organization of which uh, Global Minnesota is one of the affiliates across the country. His topic was equitable and just global energy transition. Gives you an idea of some of the things that he does. In the past few years, I've had the opportunity to work with John um, as on behalf of Global Minnesota, and I have never ceased to be amazed at his political and cultural literacy, um, some of which you will hear about today. Lori McDougall, uh, a fellow Global Minnesota board member will facilitate our panel conversation as a follow-up to John's presentation. And um, keep your questions, uh, write them down because uh, they'll be more than willing to um, answer them. 
Lori had a 30-year career at United Health Group, serving in multiple roles in the development and operations of healthcare services, focusing on international development, health informatics, and public and private partnerships. So curiously, she was one of the first 100 employees of United Health Group and was there for 30 years. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's amazing that there were only 100 employees of this organization that has grown to be such a leader in our community. She has a long and deep interest in international and global activities, uh, starting out with her uh, degree from Thunderbird Global, uh, School of Global Management in Arizona. So, with that, I will welcome John. Okay, well, thank you so much. Um, I hope I don't disappoint you with all the accolades that was uh, mentioned about me. I uh, I am delighted to be here to speak to uh, to you about megatrends. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about is that uh, there are many great folks here that have their own international experience that can certainly uh, have uh, their finger on the pulse of activities in the world as events unfold. My goal tonight is to uh, uh, try to connect some of these dots for you and try to um, uh, create a framework as to how you see world events that at times seem chaotic, they seem painful, uh, and how you bring about a degree of structure and predictability uh, so that you can uh, design your activities, your programs, your corporate strategies around that. And when is the right time to jump in? And when is it too early? I think the analogy of surfing is quite appropriate. When you throw your surfboard in the water, if the wave is too shallow, you can't you can possibly stand on it and the surfboard is going to go down. You need a certain amount of momentum before you're able to surge that wave. And I think trying to figure out which mega trends are durable, have longevity behind them, um, and are enduring so that you can develop strategies that last five, 10, 20 years is part of the alphabet of trying to figure out how to do this kind of work. Um, uh, with that, um, I want to just briefly talk about the word megatrends. Megatrends was coined by John Nesbitt in a book with the same name. Uh, and one of the things I like about uh, the uh, one of the statements in the book is that megatrends are very much like horses. If they're, if they're all going in the same direction, it's easy to figure out that there's a megatrend that, that you're facing. Um, the challenge is when signals are weak and signals are in different parts of the world and not um, a chorus of voices or a chorus of evidence that you can see, it is those early phases that makes the practitioners of strategic planning, megatrend analysis, et cetera, uh, people that are really important to, uh, to focus on. Uh, in, in my shop, in my business, we focus on public value, but to be able to figure that out, we track a lot of data uh, on a regular basis for a sort of a vacuum cleaner of information. Uh, and that analysis, uh, I did, used to do that here at 3M uh, for the portfolios we had here. Uh, uh, these public domain sources are really good at trying to uh, help us uh, figure out uh, what it is that's coming, when it's coming, and when the signal is strong enough for us to be able to put our oars in the water, our surfboard in the water, and try to, to move forward. Um, 
there is a report that uh, those who are attending the event today can download. Uh, you have a QR code for, for the report here, and there will be uh, access to this at the tables as well. Um, while you're using your phone and scanning this, I'll tell you a story. I think the story would, would make sense when we, uh, we talk about megatrends. Um, uh, it's 2004, uh, it's winter, it's cold. I'm in Beijing, China, and we are there to speak with the China Centers for Disease Control. Uh, the reason we're there was that uh, China is coming out of SARS. Uh, SARS, for those of you who may not know, is a severe respiratory illness that originated in Southeast Asia. And um, they're interested in understanding what they can do to be able to prevent that from happening again. Now, hindsight is 2020, of course, but in 2004, well, what I was presenting to them was basically uh, a model that predicted outbreaks and based on the intensity of outbreak, it predicted what the intensity of consumption of products and services are going to be. For those who do analytics, these kinds of things are very simple things to do. And, uh, but for them, it seemed very exotic. The Centers for Disease Control presentation was in a room, maybe a quarter of the size here. Uh, the, uh, there were a number of people that seemed very studious because as I spoke, everybody was scribbling down uh, what was being said. And uh, uh, when the meeting was over, uh, during the course of the meeting, of course, I ran a simulation, but in real time, it was showing an outbreak, numbers were moving, things were moving on the screen, and it showed a dynamic view of what's happening. Uh, when the meeting was over, a uh, young gentleman approached me and asked if he could visit the Ministry of Health that afternoon, which was an unusual invitation. Of course, we said yes. My colleagues uh, uh, are all from Korea and China, and of course, they, they participated. And when we arrived at the ministry, to our surprise, we were at the uh, great reception hall for foreign visitors at the ministry. Uh, the Office of International Cooperation at the Ministry organizes these kinds of events. And uh, we had, uh, and I was speaking to the head of emergency management for the country. Um, I'm speaking about this because at that time, I don't think I could have predicted 20 years later, uh, our lives would be governed not only by uh, COVID, but also by the consequences of that in terms of how we have to make our supply chains more resilient and or the consequence, consequences to business as we go forward. So um, small events that have a long shot uh, uh, action and, and repercussions are really important. And I think part of the challenge and the artsy part of trying to figure this out is trying to pick up those early signals and then track them to see when they become strong enough to engage and decide on corporate strategy. Um, the 12 megatrends that I speak about really fall into five different categories. Uh, globalization and market access is one cluster. Uh, there are a number of them having to do with uh, industrial policy and supply chains. Uh, we hear that work quite a bit. Uh, we, we are uh, affected by absence of products, uh, shortage of products, and that's the supply chain issue. Uh, it impacts our public policy domestically and our foreign policy internationally. And of course, 
demographics and movement of people around the world have a, have a big effect on the outcome. So I want to make sure you see it in larger buckets before seeing a, a dozen or so items on the list. Um, the list is here. I'm not going to go through the list. You can get a copy of the report and, and read it. But for tonight, I'm going to focus on four things that I think are quite important especially as we look into 2024. I think as we were envisioning the global business outlook, one of the things I really wanted to get across was that there's some measure of predictability uh, looking 12 or 15 months ahead. For many companies, that's their operating plan. Um, and then they have a vision of where they are three, five, nine years down the road. Uh, and, and of course, that crystal ball becomes very cloudy, as you can imagine, many of the things we're facing today, we could not have predicted uh, three, five, or nine years back. Um, however, I'm going to focus only on these four megatrends. Um, uh, I will go through them, but they have to do with globalization, and they have to do with the industrial policy and supply chains, because our government, other governments, are heavily invested in these areas. And our companies in Minnesota, our companies in the United States are watching very carefully to see how the industrial balance is going to change because of, uh, because of these investments, because of regulations. Governments really do two things very well. They regulate and they make our taxes and redistribute it in some way. And investments of these kinds is a form of investing in, in what they believe is the strength, the, the stronger parts of our economy. The first one I want to focus on is uh, megatrend number one. It's where your globalization's country put a premium uh, on access to their markets. No doubt the trade disputes that we hear about in, in the news is part of this uh, larger uh, topic. There are a large number of people that are gonna become the consumer class in countries that were underdeveloped, they're now developing. And this consumer class needs goods and services. And generally companies in the United States in other countries are suppliers of these goods and services. And we're all competing for, for these folks, for these individuals. If you, globalization now has got a bad connotation because of uh, much of what has been happening recently. But if you look at the span of time, the 66 years between the end of World War II and 1916, the size of the US economy increased by about $2.1 trillion. And every year uh, per person, that means uh, $7,000 more per person entered the economy. Uh, while jobs were lost during that period, for every 200,000 job that was lost, 100,000 jobs was gained. And so if you have a long view, you can see transitions uh, like this. And who knows, with artificial intelligence, we may be on the verge of yet another wave of transition. Um, what we have to do, the difference between those who lost jobs and those who, who were employed because of the changes, are the people we have to sort of help, retrain, and, and bring back into uh, the workforce. And that's part of the equity that we talk about, uh, plain and simple. However, we don't have this degree of foresight to know what happens a year from now, five or 10 years from now. 
um, the G20, the top 20 industrialized nations in the world are a dominant force. And for Minnesota, for the United States, those markets are, are crucial and important. They have 85% of the global GDP. Uh, those 20 countries, the other 180 plus countries have the other 15%. So you can see how lopsided the, uh, the equation is. Uh, the share of international trade is about 75% amongst those 20. And they have two thirds of the world's population. So to understand what goes on in the world means we have to understand what, what goes on in these 20 countries. We're one of the 20. We have to become politically and uh, technically, uh, culturally more literate about the other 19 and, and beyond. Um, I have the uh, report from Minnesota uh, Trade Office as to what the top countries and what the level of exports were from Minnesota to those countries. And as you can see, many of those uh, accounts uh, are part of the G20. So it, the trend is even important for us here in Minnesota. We can't escape those types of trends. Uh, in, between 2020 and 2030, so six more years, uh, we're, we're, uh, January 1 is almost upon us here. Uh, in that decade, uh, these are the number of people, in millions of people, that are going to enter the rank of middle class in those countries. And as you can see, this is the group that's driving consumption. And that's why uh, these countries are becoming a, a top target for many businesses as they develop their strategy. So uh, an entry of uh, these individuals into the rank of the middle class requires market access if we are to provide products and services from the United States to One way to minimize barriers to trade is to make sure you and the other trading country do not have tariffs uh, that stop trade between the two countries. Uh, free trade agreements are the way we build reciprocity between countries and, and uh, flow of goods and services can happen uh, with some degree of ease. And as you can see, many countries are Active, in fact, hyperactive about building these uh, free trade agreements. Free trade agreements uh, used to have a certain design to them in years past. Now, the nature of free trade agreements are actually changing. But as you can see, free trade or barrier uh, trade, tariff free trade, is something that countries are looking for. Now, you just don't remove your, your tariffs. You want to make sure they offer their um, workers the same degree of worker, worker protections than we do. That may be why our costs higher. But, so you have to try to figure out in free trade agreements, how you create balance and reciprocity between, between the two groups. Um, I have some questions for reflection here after every mega trend. And for this one, the question is, how will this impact your industry? Um, uh, for the public sector, remember, uh, we have to, uh, government regulates and we use those regulations and under the banner of those regulations, under that umbrella, we are actually moving forward uh, with our business plans. Um, which aspects of these megatrends are crucial to your organizations that you have to plan for? Uh, we will hear from uh, 
three talented individuals that do this for their companies shortly in the panel. And um, how do you integrate these insights into your strategy? Is, is the signal weak right now and you have to wait a year or two before you know it's the right time to engage? These are critical questions that has to be asked from a strategy perspective. I'm gonna switch over to another mega trend, number six. And in, in the report that you will, be, you will be downloading, one of the things you will see is that for each mega trend, I talk about what governments are doing. What is the effect on the economy? What's the effect on society, et cetera? Because each megatrend has consequences, not just for business, but for everybody that's participating in involved. But in this one, we see this now with uh, greater strength uh, here, uh, both in the US and around the world. Environmental policy will drive an increasing share of the industrial policy and economy. So usually uh, countries have some uh, approach to what we call environmental policy. But when the demand gets to be high enough, consumers and end users are willing to give to provide a premium for products that have certain characteristics that make them desirable to purchase. And therefore, industrial policy, where you invest, investing in renewable energy, investing in um, electric vehicles, et cetera, becomes, starts driving the economy rather than being just and policy discussion becomes a practical way of approaching things. And there are a few things I want to share with you. One of the, uh, I think, misconceptions everyone has is that when environmental policy is ratcheted up, this is going to slow down business or affect it negatively. You can look at uh, this selection of countries here. The blue area is the GDP of the country over a 30-year period. As you can see, it is going up as the red arrow, which is the amount of emissions they have, is going down. So you can have um, uh, growth in your economy while you're reducing emissions. Now, the question is, are we reducing it fast enough, given the capacity of the planet to be able to respond? But uh, growth uh, in a country is not antithesis to um, uh, to a good environmental regulation. This is this is proven now that we have a thirty-year view. Um, when you ask citizens of various countries what their views are on these kinds of issues, it, it's interesting to see uh, that uh, in many countries, uh, whether they are more in favor of protecting. Uh, the environment versus protecting the economy and creating growth and jobs. Um, in many countries that are facing a great deal of pollution, what you see is that they're far more in favor of environmental measures because they see that every day. Um, when they open the faucet, clean water is not coming out. There's pollution in, in the cities, et cetera. And so they, the consequences are felt immediately. And I'm delighted to have Lebanon here because the council changed this. That's a bonus that actually is the problem. You know, we have, uh, we are, of course, the United States, we're very proud of Medical Alley, the, the collection of medtech and life sciences coming here in Minnesota, of Silicon Valley, our, our technology hub uh, in California. But climate tech is becoming an increasingly uh, big part of investing. And this is the amount of venture capital money 
that is going uh, into these things. When it's not your money and it's not government money and somebody actually has to put their hand in their pocket and give somebody venture capital money, you know that there is a great deal of scrutiny as to whether these solutions have actually uh, great consequences or not. Because they could, people could be spending that money on, on a variety of different things and get different return on their investment. But obviously they think climate tech will have a good return going forward. Um, this is probably a sobering view. I'm not too sure how we're going to, uh, to approach this, but um, renewable energy and our capacity to be able to deliver uh, battery power, especially, is really important. If you want to have a lot of electric cars on the road, you need to have 1,000 to 2,000 pounds of battery per car on the road. That means you may you would need uh, uh, several tens of pounds of lithium per car. Uh, that means you need uh, to mine lithium, to collect it, to bring it to the United States because we don't have active uh, lithium mines in the U.S. Um, this is the, the, the small battery is today's capacity of various countries to make lithium batteries, the kinds of stuff that goes into our gadgets as well as what goes into our cars. Five years from now, you can see uh, China, for instance, is expected to produce 600% more batteries. It needs a lot of raw materials and other things to be able to do that. If we are to have resilient supply chains in our battery operations so that our big three and others are able to um, access this technology and make more electric cars, we need that. So the needs are not just for the end product, but for all the raw materials we need to be able to get them. Since we have Ecolab here, I put something about water because it's a critical, of critical importance. We take for granted the fact that we can turn our faucet on and be able to drink a glass of water without worrying about it. Um, what you see is a selection of countries here where what percentage of the population has access to clean water that they can drink out of their tap. As you can see, most of the world doesn't have access to that. So um, environmental just doesn't mean energy, even though we're consumed by, by uh, talking about renewable energy and, and, and other means of producing energy. But, but being sustainable also means having the basics, clean air, clean water. And uh, the good news is that we have great Minnesota companies here that are able to offer that. And I would be remiss because people have a representative from Cargill on the panel to talk about agriculture. So I covered Lebanon, people lab at Cargill. And, and, and I think sustainable agriculture is one of those things that is becoming increasingly important. When you have nine billion, eight to nine billion people in the next decade or two to feed, uh, uh, being able to take care of the land and do the agriculture in a manner that is sustainable becomes uh, an even more important. It needs inventions, it needs development, it needs education. Uh, it just doesn't happen magically. And so the capacity of our companies to educate and equip the rest of the world to do that is highly dependent on the capacity of people in those countries to be able to receive that knowledge and put it into practice. If, there are, if, if the educated class, if the people that are doing the farming are unable to take that information and, and, and make it practical, 
then we're not able to um, affect the rest of the world in a positive way. And you will hear a conversation or dialogue about that here at, uh, in the panel right after this. Again, the questions for environment and industrial policy is what is the impact to your industry? Um, there is uh, uh, the kinds of rebates that are being offered, for instance, on the electric car would probably increase the sale of electric cars. That means more, more has to be produced. More equipment manufacturers, component manufacturers have to be active. Many of those manufacturers are in Minnesota. In fact, 3M uh, actively supports uh, auto industry in providing a lot of products that go into the car. You see the manufacturers logo on it, but when you open their foot, there's all sorts of folks, companies that are that are putting products in there. So impact is really important to, to gauge beyond the final product. Uh, in the last few minutes uh, of my, my uh, uh, talk to sort of steering the crowd, I see a lot of steering here, um, because I think a lot of people are nodding and are, are still attentive about 19 minutes through my talk here. So I'm, I'm really pleased about that. Uh, governments will invest in national economic sectors with a high global competitive advantage. You can be sure that in Germany, the German government is going to invest in the auto industry because it is 34% of the GDP of the country. So they want to make sure they're not going to fall behind anybody else. Government investments are a critical part of the equation at a global level. And up until recently, uh, uh, Western countries decided that market forces would naturally be able to uh, bloom to the surface, the companies that are the best, the technologies that are the best, and they would find a way to market, and it would happen very organically. Uh, I think it's increasingly understood that state support is required because some of the investments are so astronomically large that no company has the deep enough bank account to be able to take that risk on its own. And so governments are actively investing in this area. Um, which governments? If you look at global patent activity, you may get a sense of who some of these folks are. Um, this is the percentage of patents that were awarded uh, in the world. Five countries dominate most of the patents, and you can be sure their governments are supporting their companies to be able to get them. Uh, in the United States, we just passed last year the CHIPS Science Act, which has a great deal of funding in it to bring back, reshore uh, uh, companies back to the United States, but provide an incentive for companies to be, to be back here. This is a way of, uh, uh, for the first time, with a dramatically large pack package as, as this is, the uh, United States has, has started to actually do what other countries have been doing for decades. Now, if you're a company and you make your product, you sell them for a decent profit, you're able to reinvest that profit in your people and your organization and, and grow your business. An extra 52 billion injection into your market segment can radically change the balance of power in your market segment. So these kinds of investments are not uh, are really important to track because if you believe 
you have an opportunity to get some of this funding, you want to your, put yourself in the intercept path to be able to receive some of that funding and be the beneficiary. The state of Minnesota may want to put itself in the intercept path to be able to, uh, uh, to receive that. Um, uh, important to note that uh, dispensing this funding by and large has been uh, given to U.S. Department of Commerce. And we have representatives for the Department of Commerce from the U.S. Expert Assistance Center, et cetera, here actually in the room. So very important uh, to mention that this is happening in the United States. Uh, Europe, soon after, within a few months, had their own package. And of course, other countries are investing significantly. You will see in, uh, in the report, uh, for instance, $450 billion uh, over 10 years by Korea in Korean chip infrastructure. Chip making uh, requires clean water, uh, high conductance water. Uh, and so uh, we have technology here that will be able to, for instance, uh, uh, assist in those areas. Now, as part of CHIP, the CHIPS Act, we have been actually a beneficiary of it. Just a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that Minnesota and a cluster of uh, organizations in Minnesota, including University of Minnesota, Mayo Clinic, Medtronic, uh, all participated in becoming the recipient of um, being designated as a, as a tech hub. This is the phrase as part of CHIPS Act that's being used for groups that will be given somewhere between 40 to $80 million by US government to invest in areas that they believe would have impact in a roster of uh, activities and themes that uh, US government has identified. Same questions apply. Um, does it impact your industry? Uh, is it crucial to your organization? And when is the right time to step in and put an intercept path to receive that funding and be the beneficiary of. And I would be remiss if I don't talk about supply chains because all of us have gone to the store where things are quite not there. We wait a while uh, to, to receive products. Uh, used car prices go up because there are not enough chips to make new cars uh, and, and so on and so forth. But governments have have decided they will invest to diversify sources of supply. Now, before many governments began doing this after COVID, I would have bet my money that governments are the last people that know about supply chains. <laughs> Some people are from companies understand fully what I say. Governments really don't understand supply chains. Yet, uh, they have the regulatory power to influence that um, uh, for instance, they can say certain segments of the economy need to carry 10% uh, more inventory. They can regulate that. And then that cost would be with the initial cost to that. The cost would be passed on to the end users. But the power to regulate is really important. And now the power to invest through many of these um, uh, legislation that's coming from Washington is increasing. Uh, the uh, enhancing resilience of logistics and supply chain is a, is a very important factor. If you ask companies, most of them are now going to dual sourcing, which means for every raw material, you wanna make sure you have at least qualified two of them. We have a lot of medtech companies. When they qualify a raw material for a medical device, 
they have to use that raw material and can't just switch to another one unless they find with the FDA and get approvals all over again. And so this can be a cost and expensive piece for, for, uh, for many companies. But it's important because uh, production can stop. Uh, critical uh, materials that, that have a long lead time, more of it may be uh, kept uh, in inventory. The nemesis of a just-in-time production and a just-in-time consumption system is a global pandemic. We have learned. And, and so uh, this, these are hard lessons learned. I, I don't think if there was, if it, if there wasn't, if it wasn't for the existential crisis we had, we would not have known that there are so many gaps in our production and consumption uh, systems. Reshoring, uh, regionalizing supply chains that, so that your, your producer are closer to your factories um, and reducing the number of products that are not selling. You can reduce the complexity of your business. Reducing SKUs has been around forever, but I think it's more, it's intensified in light of the shortages that we see. Now, um, uh, I'm especially interested in the top seven reasons why uh, reshoring after the pandemic has become popular. Um, as you can see, proximity to customers becomes uh, is always the number one priority. You want to produce as close as you possibly can to people that consume your products. You don't have gaps in the of uh, goods and services. Number two, Government incentives, hence the CHIPS Act. It reduces the risk for businesses to bring everything back to, to where they're able to, uh, to uh, produce uh, with greater certainty. You need a skilled workforce. When we have 3% unemployment in our state, uh, factories that relocate here, how will they find those individuals that they have to hire to run those factories in such low um, unemployment? This is a challenge for our state. It's a challenge for our country. Certain things can be done, probably artificial, artificial intelligence, but a widget that requires somebody to delicately put it together because it's a medical device may not be one of them. Synergies and the image and brand of producing in Minnesota, producing made in USA, uh, and other countries have the same fervor for making it in their own countries. This is not unique to the United States. Uh, impact on domestic economy, and of course, infrastructure. I have to speak about infrastructure. As you saw from one of the charts I showed you, one of our destinations in the world, one of the biggest destinations in the world for our products from, from, the, from Minnesota and from the United States is Europe. But today, in Minnesota, we don't have direct air freight, regular air freight from Minnesota to Europe. We actually put all the products we want to ship to Europe on truck, send it to Chicago, and then it gets palletized uh, and goes by freighter to Europe. This is a gap in our state supply chain that we have to bridge. And of course, uh, there are plans and there are regulations to look at state and needs and be able to do that. But as you know, the wheels of government move slowly. I think uh, groups like this or companies that have like-minded outcomes can uh, increase their voices and amplify it. Uh, and uh, we can talk about that a little bit more during the break, uh, during networking session as well. Um, 
I think this is the, the bar chart here is to me is interesting. Uh, every two years, companies face disruptions that last between one to two weeks. And a two to four week disruption in supply chain happens about every 2.8 years. And if you have a two months or beyond disruption, that happens about every five years. Most of these numbers have actually gone down, meaning the disruptions are longer and tend to be more frequent. And I think this is what is the, the driving force behind resilience in, in supply chains. Resilient means you have various sources of raw materials, you, you are able to produce your products in many different locations. You have all means of transportation available to you to be able to get your products to the market effectively. Then, then you have a well-oiled, well-running well system. Um, almost all countries, uh, as these faded in, the first uh, is the resilient supply chain plan for the Federal Republic of Germany. Uh, the, second, uh, the second one is uh, the, the logistics plan. Uh, sorry, the first one is for UK. The second one is for Germany, Japan, China, and the United States. Every country is taking a serious look at their supply chains to see how they can improve it. If our businesses don't know what decisions they're making, uh, getting products to those markets, manufacturing in those markets, and taking the manufactured products and sending them to other countries could be a challenge for us. So I think this is one of those mega trends that's going to be going forward for a while. You cannot possibly uh, rejigger the entire global supply chain in a matter of, of uh, one, two, or five years, something that took 30 or 40 years to develop. Um, with that, I want to uh, end my, uh, my conversation here. The, the future that we talk about because of these mega trends is already here. It's not some distant future that we, that we have to wait for it to arrive. Uh, the goal is to try to pick up the signals as fast as we possibly can to be able to get the message across and make decisions in our businesses that are good and effective for us. And with that, I'm going to uh, pass it on to, uh, to Lori. But before uh, doing that, I just wanted to mention that you can have a, uh, uh, we decided as part of this global business outlook that it would be an opportunity to have a conversation with me for the first 10 people that signed up. And so um, I just wanted to announce that and with that, I mean, thank you for your attention. Yeah, very good. So um, the corporations in Minnesota and across the country are worried about the mega trials that John was just talking about. They all work very hard to bring in executive level expertise to really look at um, the various strategies these are the people that bring their hands and spend sleepless nights worrying about megatrends um, and wondering what their impact, the impact is going to be on their business. So we are really honored tonight to have three uh, strategic experts from three of Minnesota's uh, top and largest corporations, um, Ecolab, Medtronic, and Cargill, uh, to share their insights on how they're thinking about megatrends. Um, and I think most importantly, what we are what I'm excited to hear about is really how do you take these big trends, these big kind of macro, um, big uh, global movements and translate it and uh, bring it into concrete strategies and actions that their that their companies 
um, I really used to adapt and pivot to meet the demands on the business environment. Um, so we're really happy to have them here tonight. We're going to start um, with Cedric um, Gowry from Cargill. Um, Cedric is currently the global head of corporate strategy on, on Cargill's corporate strategy and development team. Cedric joined Cargill in 2018 as the corporate strategy director in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa regions before moving to Minnesota in 2022 in his current role. He provides strategic direction for the corporation and its portfolio and supports strategic projects for individual businesses across the country. Uh, Cedric holds an MBA from INSEAD, uh, a master's degree in general management from Sylvie Business School, and graduated from the Belgian. Royal Military Academy as a civil engineer. So, Sandra, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your work and how kind of these mega trends are affecting you? Okay, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay, first, I'd like to apologize for my so French Belgian accents. Sometimes I speak slowly. So, uh, it's those big actions for us. When we see those are as business opportunities, and also as a stupid kind of activities. And we call two mega trends in particular that uh, that you're not to discuss this evening. So the first one is more population growth for us. We see population growth. We see especially also the population growth. The population is growing by like one percent per year. The biggest part of the population, the high income class that we see. So it's the population that is earning more than 15,000 or 18,000 for housewives. What's 300 million people a few years ago? It's going to be now 700 million people. And by 2030, we see 1.3 million. And for us, this is very, very important because at this kind of income, we don't go for the cheapest food ever. You go for something that is making you more healthy and that is. And where we can live, I would say, longer and better lives. And that is a trend that, uh, that, that we see also at this kind of income level. Often, those people, this income level we see is 40 plus. Uh, it's people who are kind of also a bit kind of a uh, bit more. And, and it has been pushing impacts on our own portfolio. We see the strength of people going much more into natural projects. And we see a switch uh, less people eating less beef, more and more chicken. And especially driven by sustainability, by super trends that I will come to. Uh, we see also a big rise in seafood. Uh, seafood and chicken are emitting five to six times as seafood than beef on one hand. And also, this other hand, I would say those are very healthy content. In terms of this, we see also another kind of big trend is people, once they come to this kind of income level, they try to switch the calories coming from carbohydrates. Sweeteners or oils or fats, and they try to enter calories also coming from proteins and also vegetable proteins. So we see this for us as a massive impact in the whole our portfolio. And also, now we see um, the whole food system or flow system of calories. So this is the first one, it's the population rates. And the second one is sustainability. So, it's, uh, so sustainability, I say, there's an impact on the kind of proteins. To vegetable proteins, seafood proteins. But we see this also as a huge impact for us because of all this, the world bioenergy, biofuel. Uh, how can we have circular energy with oils? Uh, we can we selling oils to McDonald's, we can recycle this oil and we use it again to make a biofuel. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Next, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Brett Knapp from Medtronic. Brett's been at Medtronic for 20 years, serving in multiple levels of leadership with the emphasis on strategy and business development. He's currently serving as vice president of global region strategy, focused on growth in emerging markets and advancing the company's uh, go-to-market strategies. Brent holds a BS in chemical engineering from the University of Wisconsin and MS in aerospace engineering, a PhD in mechanical engineering from Stanford University. So Brent, can you tell us about your work at Medtronic and a little bit about global trends? Yeah, thank you. Um, so at Medtronic, we, we have a global regions organization that is focused on emerging markets growth and serving our patients in emerging markets, as well as providing standardized services to um, uh, our businesses and our patients around the world. So we will provide customer care and service repair in, in all markets. Um, as you can see on the slide above, Medtronic is a pretty vast reach. We're the, the world's largest uh, med tech company. Um, we're, we have operations in over 150 countries around the world. Um, those countries tend to have different market dynamics, different uh, reimbursement systems, different patient needs, different levels of maturity. So we have to uh, customize our, our strategy somewhat. Um, but in so doing, we can break the best of Medtronic to patients in the world. You can see we help out um, 74 million plus patients uh, every year. So that's two patients per second that can benefit from uh, our technologies. So my job is to make sure that we are providing efficient um, uh, support in developed markets like the U.S. and Western Europe, but also to think about how we drive accelerated growth in um, emerging markets and, and get the most out of our portfolio of those emerging markets. And you asked about um, megatrends. The good news for medical device is that there hasn't been a true like paradigm disruption um, uh, in, in a long time. The, the basis of competition uh, is still innovation and customer intimacy, understanding therapy and market dynamics. Um, so the, the traditional model still works fairly well. Um, that said, there's been a number of inflection points in the last 10 years that have changed how we make trade-offs and how we differentiate competition. Um, 10 years ago, there was a shift in reimbursement paradigms in, in the U.S. and elsewhere, and with the Affordable Care Act and, and uh, EDCI and emphasis on risk sharing and pain sharing that led to a wave of value-based healthcare innovation that you know, Medtronic and others participated in. Um, more recently, we're seeing technology as a somewhat of a disruptor. Um, an, an evolving disruptor, as you think about the increasing um, power and capabilities of, of micro devices, microelectronics, uh, the interconnectivity and uh, the rapidity with which data can be exchanged, the availability of edge computing um, is creating the opportunity to establish new uh, data oriented ecosystems that we, that we can build around, uh, build around our therapies, yielding better outcomes, but also enabling us to differentiate competitors. So, um, but the one I want to focus on, because it ties to what John was saying a minute ago, and is around globalization. This this was one that's on my uh, on my radar quite a bit lately. Um, if you think back in your memory, uh, John showed a slide that showed China, India, and Indonesia as three of the largest growing opportunities uh, internationally. Well, those are all three countries that are fo focusing on make global. For the last ten years, China has been um, providing. <laughs> Policy guidance and an advantage to local companies that has very much shaped the dynamics of, at least in the medtech industry, um, how you compete in that market. Uh, we tend to have multiple 
um, tiers of products and even have some local brands that we've established. India is now very serious about made in India and it is influencing your ability to get out tenders, especially those that are um, facilitated by uh, government payers. Uh, Indonesia actually now also has a, a strong made Indonesia component if you want to be on a government supported tender. Um, and this is a very interesting trend because A, it seems that the solution is obvious, just go after uh, local manufacturing, but that's at odds with economies of scale when you tend to want to centralize manufacturing where you have advantages and capabilities in country. So it is one that we're struggling with right now, trying to figure out what country is also. I'll stop. I'll stop. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. So next, I'd like to introduce Sam Shu from Ecolab. Sam is the Executive Vice President of Strategic Planning for Ecolab. During his 27-year career at Ecolab, he had held leadership positions in global service business sector, digital transformation, international healthcare, treasury and corporate development, and um, focused specifically on Latin America and the greater China regions. Sam has been recognized as a leader in sustainability, safety, public health, and corporate uh, social responsibility. He has a bachelor's degree from the National uh, Taiwan University and a master's degree in business administration from the Health School of Management at Northwestern. He also completed the leading global business executive program at Harvard. So, hey, Sam, can you do the same thing? Tell us about your work at, at Eagle Lab. Sure. So I think the last of you probably familiar with Ecolab, but not everyone of you familiar with Ecolab. So because we're business to business, so, so let me just highlight that a little bit. What's Ecolab really all about? We care about people's life and then protect the vital resource while doing that help this customer to thrive. So that's our bailout competition. That's our everyday things on so we serve the 3 million customer location. So you think about it globally in 170 plus countries. So the size of this from the perspective. And if you think about Fortune 500, most of that really are the customers. So like the other two companies here are the customers. So, so from that perspective, think about the scale is really very large and how what we're doing. You could flip to the next page. The key component really how we drive the impact. So, so you never think about the ecoland linking to the global electricity power generation, but actually we serve more than 22% of the body. So if you think about the nuclear power generation, our numbers are way much higher. So, so think about the food, the milk. Worldwide we serve more than 44%. So from that perspective, we really cover all different market segments from the perspective. So, so when we talk about a global mega trend, we start with people. So like increasing population, we'll definitely consume more food, more water, more energy, more resources. So, so that's already have a certain gap today. If you think about water today, industrial segments really facing a 40% gap challenges. And that gap will continue wide and from perspective. So, so that's kind of components, this opportunity, how to drive the, the implications. But on top of that, the wild population increasing, at the same time, the OECD countries, the birth rate drop. So because of that dropping, then we're facing the aging population challenges. We're going to have the more service need from the perspective. When you have economic expansion and on top of that, they don't really have enough of people's supply for the labor for the service need, then you have a labor challenge, labor shortage. So that's another way to think about how can we do really solving that. 
The second thing is really the consumption behavior change. We have to change. I would think about, I talked about the gap on the food, energy, water, et cetera, et cetera. If we don't change our behavior, the gap will continue to widen and we are facing significant issues. And that the resource really not abundant from a perspective. So we need to change the, the behavior, do the conservation, do things more efficiently, smartly, et cetera, et cetera, joint the third thing is really that the, the human being really are smart and then willing and then have a strong heart want to solve the biggest challenge and problem. So, so as a society, I think we all want to really leverage innovation, leverage technology adoption to make the changes. So with lots of technology and development from the perspective, they are really, really critical. Generally, AI is somehow automation, really moving that significantly. So that's another the huge kind of big trend in front of us and every company really working on that. The number four really from the environment, so look at political environment, geopolitical market, etc. There are lots of kind of uh, tension, conflict, or bipolarization, or regionalization, or professionalism. You can think about that. It's not like a, the, the, the spoons and globalization market. It's all shift. So how to deal with the, the conflict kind of environment and then driving towards an outcome is kind of important. But beside that, definitely think about the, the, the extreme weather, so the, 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 the environment situation changes, so there are lots of kind of solution implications to drive forward to. Let me just name, name one more thing from a perspective. It's a deep, when the economic world, so, so last time we talked about the inflation, the high interest rate driving economic growth rate might not be as high as it used to be. So, so worldwide, really the forecasting the next few years will be lower than the average historical growth rate. So, so most companies really focus on how to really capture market drive towards it. You can think about to do differently and capture insurance, otherwise it would be, be relevant from perspective. So, so those are the key things really big. Terrific. So, so those are the kind of broad overall megatrends that we're talking about. We wanted to kind of focus on a couple specific that John mentioned and that are critical to the, these organizations. So Cedric was going to start and talk about a little bit about supply chain management and how Cargill thinks about supply chain. Yes, and this too, we think about sustainability, one of the megatrends and by the so it's, it's something that is very, very important. Cargill started initially as a supply chain company. Moving to the core of the business is kind of we can moving rates uh, from regions in the world with excess of rates to regions in the world with deficits. Uh, so we can more simplified as we mean from, from North America to Brazil, South America, the rest of the world, something else in the But we see trends that, that can kind of much more recently. First is the, the more sustainability trends starting in Europe two years ago. And especially our kind of everything around no change labor, no deforestation, starting with the global supply chain. And so we were able to, to trace the world supply chain from, from starts to, um, to the ends. And in fact, we have two companies in the world being able to meet this medical burden in ourselves. And it's very helpful because we can now sell, I would say, for customers like green um, labor, like this state, uh, or with this kind of traceability in the supply chain, also resilience is very important. So we start first. Now, with uh, sustainability and, and all the 
Well, we see, that we see also the reduction of, of CO2 emission because agriculture is also part of emission in the supply chain. It's important for us also to be able to trace where our grapes are coming from, from which of the farms we have working, so that we can also help all those farms. I can say, we, uh, as an example, we, we have them in regenerative farming, meaning that there is some waste, uh, so, so that you're, you're using much less of CO2 or form, I would say, when you're producing your. So the supply chain, which was our core business, uh, it's even coming, uh, I would say, to today, to Great. So Brent, we wanted to talk also about technological innovations as a med tech company. Talk about that technology. Yeah, I think I'll go back to something I alluded to in my, my, my first comments. So yeah, we see technology as, as a a potential disruptor in, in our industries. And it's not, traditionally we think of other companies coming in and disrupting existing space, but there's also opportunities for us to disrupt the spaces ourselves, especially as they mature. Um, so the example I wanted to, to give on this was, uh, yeah, our spine business was, um, it was you know, it, it's a large multi-billion business, global business. Um, over time, the basis of competition was eroding. The market was maturing. There wasn't a lot of um, clinical or feature separation between some of the implants that various companies were providing. Um, and, and as a result, um, you know, first dozens, then hundreds of spine implant companies appeared. And you can see, if you think about business, you can see how this plays out. You start chasing that uh, low-cost provider, um, uh, sort of industry, uh, it, it becomes less attractive. What we were able to do on the basis of technological innovation is start to create uh, a bold around our therapy. So we are taking robotics that link with uh, procedure planning done digitally in advance that can, that, that, that entire therapy and system is then connected to a patient engagement through uh, apps and other means to collect outcome and symptoms data that is then fed back into the procedure planning. We can combine that with video uh, recording and analysis of the, the procedure as it's executed to improve workflow and now you've got a, a barrier to competition. You've got a competitive advantage that is very difficult for a small company to replicate, right? And so these are the first sorts of things. In, in general, in MedTech, I see this as a future where kind of reestablishing the, um, the right to win of sort of larger, more sophisticated companies as opposed to B2s is a, a trend we're seeing in multiple categories. But this is a way that you can think about leveraging technological megatrends as an advantage to revitalize your business as opposed to just sort of riding the wave to ensure riding that S curve. It's, you know, if you go back to business school, it's getting that second S curve. Um, they, they so that's how we're doing. Sam, okay, one more in a more specific um, area. How about uh, environmental sustainability? So, so when we talk about the sustainability, environment, urban laws, and kind of talk um, and all the different kind of areas. But let me summarize in kind of four major trends from our perspective. Number one, decolonization. Number two, electrification. Number three, water solution and lubrication. Number four, circularity and green product green industry. So let me go slightly deeper on that. When you talk about decolonization from the perspective, the basic concept really is a reduce, replacement, removal. Why do you reduce? Reduce really the conservation 
reduce energy consumption from the perspective. So you will use that. But lots of industrial companies, when they think about they want to reduce, they come to energy first. But in reality, when you have industrial operations, there's a huge water energy nexus. So, so solving the water and heat chain efficiency, you address 20% of the energy consumption rate. So, so that's kind of the, the reduced portion, really figure out where it would be the biggest opportunity and how to drive forward to. But then the replacement, really think about what will be renewable, renewable energy use, what will be alternative to use for that product. Right now, we are working with the other company together on driving the Minnesota safe power, sustainable aviation uh, field for the, the, the aviation industry from the perspective. It's kind of alternative, driving replacement and the reduce the carbon emission from the perspective. Then the removal is also important because why you do reduce, you also need to work on the removal from the, the, the what exists in the air. Right? So that's kind of the combination trend from the perspective. Electrification, as we talked about, there's a huge movement. So, so far right now, electricity roughly represents 20% global energy source. But by 2050, that number will move up to more than 50%. So, so what's the source of electricity production is very important. We're driving the outcome. So that's kind of component. It goes through that kind of journey as well. So I think that EV is an example that will be driving huge adoption going forward. The, the water stewardship and purification, as we talk about, industrial activity consume lots of water, but there is a huge gap already exists. And then when you have extreme weather, that create kind of a water stress, probably a bigger issue from our perspective. So how to address that and then driving the stewardship purification, driving the, the recycle, reduce, reuse the kind of components kind of important. The, the number four trend, circularity, there are lots of acti activity really moving from the perspective, from the reduce, and reuse, and re re manufacturing, recycling, and then regenerate and coming back. But that's only addressing on the, the operations and formation. The other part really on the consumer or consumption mindset behavior also can change. So the business model really need to create to enable that from the perspective. So, so that's kind of a Four high level on the four major trend on the sustainability side, why you can try. Um, we're just going to have each of them talk a little bit about how they do business actions and think about kind of how they take action and can organize as a corporation around megatrends. And we'll open it up to questions because I'm sure there's lots of questions that have come to mind. So, um, Cedric, just really quick talk about how you leverage data and analytics to look at, at trends, how you analyze this. Okay, so on the supply chain, so we are using data analytics, I would say, also the extreme short term, but also the very long term. In the short term, we are using advanced analytics and models to make trading decisions based on the methodology, you know, for example, if you can countries where you have that and it's a big on the research exploration system. So, on the long term, it's proprietary also, but it's, it's also helping us to make decisions also about where to place our assets. You know, in which region of the world, which kind of grades produced, which kind of need we have to have a proper, and, and then also you're using a lot of kind of methodological also pattern even the long run, also to, to really know about what are the opportunities for us. So using this post long term. 
Uh, Brent, do you want to talk about that too? How do you remain agile um, in an environment? Like, what do you monitor? How do you how do you do that? Yeah. Um, so we try to leverage our strategic planning and enterprise risk management processes. Um, I mean, I, those of us who are in large corporations know that as at its worst, strength planning is just a check the box PowerPoint exercise. But at its best, you know, what we try to elicit from it is. Uh, a multi uh, a multi tiered look at what are uh, some of the mega trends, how they're influencing our business, and how we should respond to them and, and change our investment. So we start with ask, asking annually each of our businesses, each of our regions, to roll up some of the, the the major geographic, political, policy, and competitive trends they're seeing, and how it's influencing their outlook on the future, how we might respond to it. Beyond that, then at the central level. We know that there are certain trends that are going to have broad impact across our business. So we, in each strategic planning process, we highlight key topics that we want everyone to speak in. For example, a couple of years ago in China, volume-based procurement was rolling out, impacting basically the entire med device industry. We asked every business, how are you going to respond to that? And how should we think about your business? We also asked them, you know, with the advent of of, of the, the power of microelectronics, how are you thinking about insight-driven care and leveraging data as a competitive differentiator, right? So then we get every business focused on it and we can review trends uh, across all of those. And then every few years, uh, I would say that a responsible company will take a step back. They'll, they'll draw from outside the experts like John, they'll, they'll draw from data and analytic reports, and they'll think about What's the latest mega trends and what is our perception of those? And with that perception, how do we think about our portfolio? What parts fit? What parts have more opportunity? What parts may need to be managed differently or separated? Um, and by doing that, you can have a virtuous cycle of top down, bottom up, where you're getting a pretty comprehensive piece. Of course, the, the key is to translate into action, right? Which is yeah, sort of the, you know, you make your money, but um, uh, yeah, that, that's part of the strategy of the process now. Yeah, Sam, but you can cover that one. <laughs> so yeah. what's the what's best timing? How do you know uh, when you see all these trends? When is it, as John was saying, when is it too early? When is it too late? How do you, how do, you do that? I think the key component I'm really thinking about is that predictable control those two dimensions kind of important. If you can predict, then really do the forecast and estimate what what will be coming and how what implication are you doing and driving forward to. And then the if it's not predictable, you probably need to do the scenario plan from the perspective, see which scenario and what, what the outcome potentially could be, and then what actually you need to do and drive forward to. But controllable version, non-controllable, you want to focus on the controllable items driving forward to. So, so throughout those kind of dimension, you can really think about how to really make a difference and make an impact. But the other key component, really think about strategy, always a feedback, dynamic feedback loop. So you develop with all the process you drive towards you. You also need to really see the action and the adjusting from the perspective. So don't wait until, hey, I have a strategy and two years later, my phone back. That's really too late. So you want really a dynamic feedback loop and make the adjustment for Perfect. Great. Well, you know, the mega trends affect all of us as consumers, policymakers, business people. So we wanted to make sure to engage the audience also and, and so that you have a chance to ask the panelists questions. So you each have a mic in front of you. And so if you raise hands, I can follow people and uh, 
You simply have to press the button, make sure your, your light turns green, and then the mic goes down for you. So, any questions? Yeah, you want to start? There's a community in the States where policymakers' governments are increasing regulations as opposed to allowing business to just do business, but increasing the level of intervention with the business. Do you see that in your business as Are you going to make more charge work in my business and this is kind of really this is kind of influencing for us so it's constrained for services of all ages. So look at the green deal of the European Commission. So as for January 2025, a lot of products that we labeled about deforestation. We don't be able to be involved into the European So this will maybe change some flows. You can see the discussions that we have between Brazil and the United States, between Brazil and Europe. Which leads to uh, the fact that the products are coming from deforestation regions in Brazil. This comes also with a big administrative burden. So, an administrative also costs to make business people. So, maybe I do not know, we can have judgment in flows. Um, say flows going from the United States more, Europe itself, Brazil, Poland, it's one of the possibilities. So, as you say, we are confronted with that all the time. So, this has an impact on business. It is also making for us opportunities. For example, the one by in Europe that we started in the United States, now with California, is because it was mandated by the governments uh, that we had this possibility now we are using kind of recycling waste to make energy. But this was only possible also because of this mandate of the governments. So mm -hmm. I see this often also as an opportunity, and therefore, also we have a, a strong problem behind the hands of government relations to have teams and governments. That are working also closely uh, connected to the governments of the United States, China, all the regions of the world. So, that would be the commission of the Are you saying any comments? Yeah, I think the absolutely the situation highlights the regulation is also opportunity. So, don't think about regulation as a new kind of constraint for you. Regulation is opportunity. On top of that, really, is that the uh, regardless of which government you, you, you talk to, sometimes they have regulations, but on top of that, they also want to focus on other people's working as well. So, how to align to create that kind of common goal and try to hold to get that opportunity? Thank you. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll just add in real quick that I'll, I'll point to, to Europe actually when you ask that question. But the, the bright light is on Europe where there's new, there, for the last several years, they've been rolling out new men device regulations that require far more political evidence, far more biocompatibility. It's quite expensive to adhere, which has required us to both invest and make trade off decisions on our portfolio and which products we actually want to, to sell there. Um, they've also, there's also pretty stringent rules on uh, data hosting and privacy that influences uh, the mega trend around digital health. Um, there's also quite a move towards an environmental and sustainability and products. Uh, if you look at the Nordic regions, we're all, already required to have pretty significant um, uh, materials that you can provide that, that, that demonstrate your environmentally sound um, or you can't get on tender. Um, which makes you rethink your business from you know, product design, packaging, packaging interfaces with sterilization, some sterilization modes are environmentally friendly, 
And then most of all, you have to have master data that actually captures all of that information. So we're finding Europe's still great. You still want to do business there, but it, is, it has gotten more complicated. I know you asked a question a little bit about the U.S. And that hasn't been as much an issue for us, but those the privacy and device regulations in Europe have, have, are definitely complicated as we introduce. Great. Sure. Question? Uh, I have a question. Uh, the BRICS and the U.S. and what is the impact um, let's say because we are 25 percent of the global economy, quite often uh, all other countries uh, are being viewed as secondary to, to what we do in the United States. U.S. has a very unique <clears throat> makeup. 70 percent of our GDP, 75 percent of our GDP, almost is domestic production and domestic consumption. Uh, export account for a small fraction of what we do, and imports must be small. Even though we have a trade deficit quite often, given the fact that we're a $25 trillion economy, it, it's quite small. The BRICS countries certainly have common needs. For instance, all of them are trying to move large uh, number of uh, lower class into the middle class. And therefore, uh, to move people into the middle class, you need to give them jobs, jobs that improve their lives. To improve their lives and to give them jobs, you need to build factories. To build factories, you need energy. Uh, when you need energy, you look at the sources that you can find. Now, the bar is raised right now at COP28, the global uh, conference uh, on sustainability uh, and sustainable development goals, is going on in Dubai. Uh, we have this. Um, the bar has been raised as to how countries need to produce energy. When we were in our industrial revolution 150 years ago, we were a very dirty energy producer, but the atmosphere had the capacity to absorb today. The, the, uh, um, the atmosphere doesn't have the capacity. So the countries that are growing in a way are asking for millions from the countries that, that are affluent and rich enough to be able to finance that green transition, like Europe, like the United States. I foresee a great deal of policy tensions between the, the, the emerging economies um, and uh, the developed economies. On a, um, on a GDP basis, we are almost at the same GDP level as China. Well, uh, if you divide the GDP of a country by the population of the country, China is number 100, not number one, because there's a lot of people in China that have to still join the rank of the middle class. And so many of these countries have, have great challenges in and, uh, and the question I think uh, at a global level is how do you create a fair, just, and equitable transition for countries that are trying to pull people out of people out of poverty and join the, the, the ranks of uh, countries that are developing a good trajectory and more and more of their people will be able to meet their basic human needs. Um, I don't know that the answer is very clear. Um, we have challenges at home, we have challenges abroad. When there's funding for these kinds of things from the United States, the question always is, we get our healthcare. 
We need better roads. We need better infrastructure. We why are we paying uh, outside? And on this, we're able to understand how our fortunes are tied to the fortunes of those other countries in ways that are not explicitly obvious to the general population. I don't think that convince the electorate of, uh, of, of the taxes. So uh, I don't have a clear answer for that, but I certainly do see that as a point of tension. And so therefore, these countries, for instance, limit market access uh, to, to their populations, because that's what our product is in That's where they want to go. And so they have levers um, that, that they can push to be able to influence the dialogue. But there's a great deal of tension as this seesaw goes back. Good questions. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a start. So, um, uh, this is Africa is an interesting question, right? Uh, because and it, it comes down to a question to answer about what you know what the right future is. Africa is for sure the future. It's, it's got growing demographics, urbanizing, et cetera, et cetera. What's the right time to get involved? Um, so there's that question that we have to address. Also, it's important to understand that Africa is not one continuous thing, right? The, 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 the discrepancies in, in, in wealth and political stability in country country are massive. Uh, this is a favorite topic of mine. We're just finishing something that we call the Africa Initiative on my strategy team, looking at, all right, how do we invest in market development and helping build out infrastructure in a set of countries in Africa so that we can penetrate some the largest cities, help build up that infrastructure, train and educate healthcare practitioners, and then use those cities as uh, hubs to then move to the second tier cities and around them. Use those countries as hubs that we can then go to neighboring countries and sort of step by step build on our business. So when we think as a publicly traded company, that's what we're doing right now. We're, we are investing in accelerating market development in a couple of countries that are a little bit further along the journey, uh, that are politically stable, that have good GDP per capita, and the governments have shown an, an interest in increasing the amount of healthcare spending. Now, on the flip side, we also have, we said right? we also have a mission, right? We have obligation to provide healthcare folks, and so we have an electronic uh, foundation that is also investing and is collaborating with governments in Africa to understand how we can provide services, products, education, et cetera, to help them along in a non-commercial capacity. So we, we separate the church and state very clearly in those regards, but in both senses, there's a great ability to have impact in Africa. We're piloting because we want to see how it goes and how momentum will build, but it is, it is, it, it, it is like the economic battleground of the future in, in some sense. I'm guessing Carmen will have an interest in it as well. And I think, you hear me? And I think we were coming to a recent conclusion as you did in the next Asia, actually. So the question is also it's really the question is when. The infrastructure, the people the need is still the same. So we don't really just rely on us to be the solution for the market in world's ecosystem. So for them, we sponsor life as a selling program. So a selling program engage the startup, really solving those challenges for the local market from the perspective, which is that the engaged ecosystem that you need to drive the 
the bigger impact in a much bigger way in the more efficient way. How about one more question? Yeah. Good evening. My name is Bill Gomez of Global Wildness Connections, and I was in the private sector for over 30 years. Um, John did a great job of articulating some of our key megatrends that we're all concerned about. And certainly, he talked about some of the gaps in supply chain. And I think one little thing about the pandemics we made uh, very visual. Um, one of them John referenced was that it is true for over 20 years, a large amount of our palletized high value product doesn't leave here on a wide body open deck aircraft. It leaves here by a truck to places like Chicago and then goes from there. Yes, small package international gets on FedEx and UPS, but the hubs get sorted out. What's really important about this is I think it's something that's been a detriment to this market since Northwest got out of a large wide body aircraft over 20 years ago. But it's taken us 20 years to address this point. And we're doing it right now in the form of public, private, and academic strategic thought leaders coming together. We've done it through a series of about four panels. Now, why is this important? The public and the academic sector have been at the table very strongly. And in fact, one of the key members of this from the Metropolitan Airports Commission is sitting across the aisle right here. The sector has been a little less involved. And I know this from my years in the private sector. We're very focused on day-to-day -day activities rather than maybe being able to break out of that and get into helping support the strategy. Back to what John said, where it's the public side that are funding these kind of efforts to research and understand how can we be more competitive. So my question boils back to how do we not even so much the senior leadership like yourself. And I can tell you, your companies have been quite involved in this, but how do we break maybe our middle, our director levels, our senior manager levels, get them to realize that their involvement in educating the public sector and even the academic sector is vital, I think, to our strategic future. Thank you. Yeah, comments, public private cooperation. Sam, I <laughs> sure. So, so I think it was we, we always have the engagement and the, the, the outside from perspective. When we participate in working on the forum, reshaping the agenda, and working on other directions going back to if we have opportunity working with the community here, whether we talk about it, so that Sam, how the kind of initiative we work with other companies to get drive forward to the key component really is the What's really for the society? Do we have a common goal from the perspective, able to align? And then do we have a really a value and strength to make the differences? If we have a chance, we're always willing to work with the others, the ecosystem, with all different segments, with different government, really driving what the outcome from the perspective. Yeah, I don't have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Confidence, right? So I want to validate what you're saying because I, I I'm realizing sitting here thinking I'm realizing I didn't think about supply chain uh, in my career until I became a general manager and then night orders prevented me from hitting my numbers, right? So earlier in my career, you just assume that I got where it's going to go, right? And to your point, it's because you think about we're very specialized, right? There's a supply chain organization that does that; they take care of it. Um, 
But now that we've had the supply chain disruption we have, we've been we had a hurricane, then ice storms in Texas, then the pandemic, right? It is obviously becoming, uh, it, it is an enduring issue in our company. And I, so I, I think I think that's going to draw some attention and it's getting more people at the junior levels. Um, but in, in my experience, you need to learn by doing, right? And so if we can create opportunities where we invite not the EVP of supply chain to participate in an academic and um, public partnership, but invite the director level folks, right? And some more doers, I think you, you're going to find that that will then propagate um, and grow over time. So, it's in general. Yeah, more education and development. How about what you said? Yeah, the spike was interesting, point, especially during the, the pandemic effects. We were thinking also that we would see some disruption. We didn't see any. We also only had to end our spike our barges. We were not really producing 600 panamites uh, also for the oceans. We have a race system forms, so we have a lot of that to next. And we saw maybe the possibility for disruption address in the very network with panel production in Malaysia at the moment, where some of the truck drivers were scared to go through the border. But it was astonishing, I would say, for folks, especially for schools. This food is very safety, it's extremely important. Uh, one way to really assist to the babies. The only kind of logistics that we know is in the Panama Canal because of the, the level of the water today, that we have much less of those panamics that can go through. So that is the goal to go through so that way, which is which is true. But we need to be positive. So that's this one's. Very good. Well, we will have lots of opportunity to still talk to the panelists if you want to stay for the networking event. So we're going to conclude the, the audience question and answer and give three things. We can give a hand of applause. And thank you, everyone. This brings me, we talked about Minnesota. We have a lot of our work bringing delegations here from all over the world, professional exchanges. We're one of the most sought after states people to come to. And part of the reason was just sitting up here in front of us. The fact that we have amazing companies, amazing skilled professionals, it's amazing organizations, people from all over the world want to come here, study, engage with us, and learn from us. We're really fortunate to have the, the presenters with us tonight. Huge thanks again to John for his program this evening. Just, just tremendous. John and I presented together in DC. I got to be his moderator, a humble moderator to a wonderful presentation he did there. Very similar experience that the, we ended that program, the entire room put their hands up. And he had young people in particular, five and six deep afterwards, coming to ask him questions. So people are really interested, they're really engaged in this, they want to learn more about what's happening with these trends in the world, better understand the world around. So a big round of applause to John. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful moderation job, Cedric, Brett, Sam, for the time that they've given us, and both, both in terms of being here tonight, but actually doing the prep and wrapping up things. Um, you can understand that these, these are gentlemen that are very engaged in their companies, are very, um, doing very important work. They give some of their time to us. Part of what Global Minnesota tries to do is to give you access to people like this, to learn from them, to engage with them, and maybe they get a chance to learn a little bit from you too in the process as well. So the insights they provide, the access we provide to you is part of what we try to do for our business community as a part of the Minnesota. So a big round of applause to all of them together. You know, giving us this wonderful space to have a program again this evening, because that's a cool group to be part of. So we got to have this time. We have super thankful to them as well. We gotta give a big go of things to, to Steve Real for here. 
Steve had a very visionary idea to put this program together. He did a ton of work to organize this, to get together with John. The two of them really, the two of them in particular, really put this together. But it was really Steve's vision that got us to where we are tonight. So a big round of applause. Again, thank you all of you. We have a little opportunity for you all tonight when you go out. I think we're going to try to do a little bit of structured, a little modestly structured <laughs> um, uh, networking experience for you. So there's going to be kind of a sustainable connect area. I think Sam's going to kind of anchor the sustainable connect area. If you look for Sam in and around his conversation around sustainability, um, he'll talk about other things too, if you want to approach him with a question, but we're going to have kind of, for those people particularly interested in that, um, we have a business response connect area that John's going to anchor. So kind of look for John for that. And a general strategic connect area that Brett's going to anchor. So as uh, first, you can kind of filter into those areas in your conversations. We have some uh, wonderful uh, uh, I don't, don't forget your drinks. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the biggest thing to say right now is just thank you to all of you for giving your time tonight and coming and being part of the conversation. We, we really want to create places, spaces, and opportunities for long-form conversations on the important topics of our time. Did you find this to be a valuable experience tonight? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be part of that conversation. I think if there's anything else announced, why did you at this point? Okay. Well, brilliant. So, um, thank you, everyone. Join us out here for, for drinks and for food and continue the conversation. Thanks, everyone.